arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Mason lines up in the backfield. Brady, play action, looks to the back of the end zone, and there is his man Chandler for the touchdown. The former Buffalo Bill tied in. Scott Chandler with his second touchdown catch of the year. First, so, so much of this is just Tom Brady knowing the plays. He's done it so much. Here goes Gronkowski back in the end zone. They do this a lot. And watch it. The original Gronkowski going across first. He's covered. Brady falls back, throws it off his back foot, and hits Chandler for the touchdown. Why, oh why am I replaying, especially for you non-football fans, why am I replaying a Tom Brady pass for a TD? Because I'm a Brady fan? Well, maybe. Brady's 2015 play-action pass against the Giants with Gronkowski going in the opposite direction into the end zone relates to episode 6 of Green Haze. Gronk is being covered and Gronk is usually the logical recipient of a Brady bullet into the end zone. Deputy Director Craig Grafton is in Africa. Grafton has alternate plans to the plan that he is executing in Pangaea. I invite listeners to focus on Grafton as events unfold. Back in the United States, Sam and Nina are on the run and boxed in. In the words of Bob Dylan, you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Their computer usage is like dropping a veil to the intelligence agencies. And that goes for Roy Garrison also, who is now aware of Sam and Nina, and they refer to him as On the Run. And he is on the run to find them. Episode 6 of Green Haze by Robert P. Fitton. Let's call the audible for Mr. Grafton. The play action begins now. Green Haze, Chapter 25. Sam lay awake for 45 minutes and stared into an intricate gray cloud layer above the snow-covered, rolling hills. Spring arrived late in Wisconsin. For three days he had debated whether to return to his Michigan college, but feared his pursuers would await such a move. He could not do it without risking death. He turned from the window and let the drapes fall back. Nina was stirring. The ordeal had worn her down to the point where she was not only demanding to call Marquette, but talked openly about going back home. Two nights ago, they had gotten in a vicious argument, continuing all the way to an outside phone booth. He told her numerous times as they traveled north, first by bus and then by hitchhiking, that calling home was impossible. She had become a part of uncontrollable events. He sat on the bed and then crawled under the covers as she looked up. She reached over and they embraced, alone, with no hope of returning back home right now. With cash running out, he needed to make a bold move. Griff's business card contained several ink-smeared numbers for the computer websites. His last hope was Griff may have taken those mailer photos and put them onto one of his other websites. It was a long shot, but now the only hope. There has to be a way out of this. I can't live like this, Sam. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in the Canadian wilderness. I know. 
He turned on the TV set. The news at the top of the hour was five minutes away. Listen, Nina, I figure we have enough money to last a week, maybe ten days if we stretch it. We have no choice about Canada. We have to get jobs and do something else until we can... I'm so scared, Sam. I don't want to see another news story about how you killed Griff. They can make up anything twisted to their own ends. She gripped him tight, but he felt helpless and held her until the news broke on the hour. They both sat up as the TV brightened. A young newsman in a blue pinstripe suit and yellow tie sat at the news desk and tilted his head as the camera zoomed. I am Steve Sable and this is Cable Headline News. A man's picture flashed behind the news anchor. Something about the man with the wire rim glasses and the steel gray hair was familiar. This was the guy on the St. John's Bridge, and now he was on the national news. Nina, that's one of the bridge guys. Come on, it is. The newsman continued. Deputy Defense Security Director Craig Grafton's plane has been shot down over the East African country of Pangaea. The rocket attack occurred 12 hours ago over the northern section of that country near Lake Shar. CHN reporter Barry Summers reports from Argos, Pangaea. A moderate-sized city appeared, and a short black man in an open bay shirt held a microphone in front of a high-rise hotel. Steve, a late report by our sources indicates that the deputy director has parachuted from the plane and may be alive on the ground. The shooting down of Director Grafton's plane could not have occurred at a worse time for the battered Ubuntu government. Rebel forces are on the move toward the capital city of Argos. There have been many rocket attacks throughout the countryside today. Sam whispered in her ear. No wonder they went after us. I shot a photograph of the Deputy Defense Security Director. No wonder they went after us. He put his arm around her and looked back at the TV set. The screen switched to footage shots of truck convoys and rocket attacks with black smoke drifting toward the clouds. CNN had learned that the attack, according to highly placed U.S. intelligence sources, have come from government anti-aircraft in the Lake Shar region. A spokesman for President Mbutu has denied this report and hoped for the safe return of the deputy director. Pangaea is an oil-rich country that is closely aligned with the United States. Deputy Grafton was here on what government sources say was a routine trip. His swing north in a U.S.-supplied F-16 aircraft was an unscheduled reconnaissance mission to view the situation from the air north of the capital in the Lake Shar region. Democracy is a new factor in this African country, and efforts by rebel forces to undermine President Mbutu are being watched closely by the United States. This is Barry Summers, CHN, Argos, Pangaea. For more reaction, here is Joan France at the White House. Sam leaned forward as a sharp woman with dark hair and a red dress held a microphone in front of the White House. This is Joan France at the White House. From Camp David, the President is carefully watching the developing events in Pangaea. CHN has been told that behind the scenes, the President is fuming at what he views as a blatant attack on a U.S. government official. There have been strategy meetings throughout the night, and it is not clear at this point just what the administration response might be. Joan France at the White House. Sam turned on the light and looked into his wife's blue eyes. We need to check Griff's other computers or websites. If we can dig out those pictures. We know they got the mailer, Sam. They have the pictures. He 
rolled out of bed, glancing at the TV again. We have to try, Nina. We have to try. You snapped the wrong picture at the wrong time. Green Haze, Chapter 26 An early morning phone call brought Pritchard into his office. He had spent all night waiting for word about Craig and Pangea. A radio transmission from Manville's staging area was pending, and the mission moved along exactly as planned. Mbutu was set up splendidly, but that was not his concern. His direct responsibility was nixing any domestic problems within the Green Haze operation. Charlie McCabe was at the front doors with a type summary from a field agent in Los Angeles. Charlie had a self-assured look as if he had just lifted a bulky diamond out of the museum. Pritchard walked inside and both men started across the lobby together. Brief me, Charlie. John Sabino swears that Garrison's old girlfriend is lying, Cam. He talked to her over an hour ago, but she wouldn't tell him anything. But he's convinced Garrison made contact. There's a definite report that Bruce Keaton is digging for information. Bruce Keaton? We don't need the FBI watching us. Look into that, Charlie. Get, get them off this. Have Edgar Mitchell set them straight. The stainless steel elevator doors opened and Pritchard went ahead of McCabe. If he could track down Garrison, people above would know about it. He would make his promising career even more promising and take off some of the escalating pressure. And search that San Pedro house. Tell him I want Garrison dead. Garrison isn't there, said Charlie. The elevator sunk down. If I were Garrison and I had this CD or whatever it is, I would try to get to a computer. Take that approach for one. Everything is classified. I, I question whether Garrison's data would be worthwhile. The lower office doors opened and Pritchard moved along the glass-enclosed strategy rooms past men who were working on other problems all night. The monitors and maps glowed bright colors in the darkened area. Pritchard stopped and turned to McCabe. I want a team assigned to that house. I don't care what you tell the woman. Pay her off. Tell her World War III is about to begin. Lure Garrison back to that house. And if he doesn't come back? Pritchard shook his head and he entered his office and then flipped on the lights. What do you have on the Peters? Nothing. Gone. The story is running on all the networks. Sam Peters killed his best friend and he's linked to the Florida killings. Cam, we have his pictures. Pritchard put his briefcase on the desk. Just get rid of him. He pushed his TV remote. What about Craig? Nobody is saying anything. The broadcast will be picked up in Argos and should hit the media thereafter. If he follows the script, he'll sing Manville's praises. Manville concerns me. Hopefully this will force the administration into a public posture against Mbutu. This thing ever breaks wide open, Craig is finished. Charlie, this thing ever breaks open, governments will fall. Green Haze, Chapter 27 Grafton arrived by military jeep. The encampment, shielded by dense forests and mountain slopes, was more extensive than intelligence had previously indicated. Not only was there an elaborate tunnel maze, but the barracks were constructed from timbers and the roofs were capped with the local fauna. Equipment, camouflage trucks, tanks, and armored vehicles were clustered throughout the jungle. What astounded Grafton as the jeep wound through the camp was the minimal amount of troops. Most wore the green and brown combat uniforms, but he saw a few rogues. He had been told less than a thousand troops were at this camp, 
and the majority of the rebel forces were concentrated toward Argos. Manville himself was flown in by helicopter. Once up the slopes, the jeep spun and stopped next to a sandbag bunker overlooking Lake Char's blue sun-glazed surface 20 miles away. Grafton stepped out. A chipped, yellow-painted gasoline-powered generator atop the bunker hummed continuously. Black soldiers stood sentry while others pointed their weapons westward at the sandbag, as if Mbutu's forces would storm over the horizon at any moment. A contingent of three officers, pistols swaying from their side straps, brought him down a dirt incline, past broken sandbags, and into a fluorescent-lit area in the tunnel. In a dirt-walled office, Manville was seated behind a wooden desk covered with maps and empty beer cans. When he stood, he filled the room. My prisoner has arrived. I'm here. Grafton scanned the room for Roland James or anyone connected to the Chinese. He tried to shake off thoughts of betraying Manville. Nothing like this had ever bothered him before. But now he was fracturing his many loyalties to those counting on him within the agency, and he was prepared to pitch it all for his selfish ends. Pleasure to see you again, Colonel. As Manville gripped his hand, Grafton studied his face. It was unlikely Manville knew anything about those men down in the jungle. The colonel motioned Grafton to an adjacent dusty wood chair. I'd like to talk about the courier. I can report we are prepared for the attack on the oil derricks this evening, Craig. Theatrics are an excellent military tactic, colonel. Manville's dark eyes bulge. What are the reports coming from the U.S.? Mbuto is being castigated. By whom? Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam, from the administration to the State Department. Even Congress is talking about cutting all aid to his government. An excellent plan, Craig. It is working perfectly just the way you wanted it, providing nothing gets in the way. Grafton sat on the edge of the desk, doubting that Manville was inferring anything about the Chinese. When you return to the lines, be prepared to assume power. Mbuto will flee once you take the presidential palace. When you return to the lines, be prepared to assume power. Mbuto will flee once you take the presidential palace. Do not think I don't appreciate all you've done for me and my troops, Craig. My job, Colonel. We will need your help after we assume power. I want changes. This country needs an air force. I have mentioned previously you must formulate a post-revolutionary plan. I want your assurance now. He stumped his foot like a non-compliant horse. And if it is not done quickly, I assure you, there are countries who will help us. His performance was lackluster and almost humorous. Are you threatening me, Colonel? We have our needs. Grafton walked up to him and looked into his deep eyes. I have the ability to bring you to success, Colonel, or scatter you to the wind. Manville pondered his words. A large crease formed between his wide brow and he gawked at Grafton. I will be the president of this country. I want an air force. Let's get one thing straight here, Colonel. I have provided you with the means for your revolution. Funding was not easy with current congressional attitudes. I have advised you, and I have given you the most up-to-date data from all our satellites, which I will continue to do, but don't dictate to me. 
This bastard must have known he meant business now. Grafton did not flinch as he stared at Manville. When you get in power, Colonel, you best know who your benefactors are. You are just a cog, and Grafton stepped back and kicked the door shut with his foot. He whipped out his pistol and buzzed across the dirt floor and thrust the pistol into Manville's neck, forming a wide dimple. I could let this rip clean through you right now. This isn't your country anymore. It isn't your oil anymore. You want to stay in power? You jump when I say jump. You run when I say run. And you don't take a piss unless you check it out with me first. He pushed harder. You got that, Colonel? He nodded in jerky motions. I, I, I understand. Good. Grafton removed the gun and placed it in his strap in one quick motion. Now you get a damn radio in here and tune it to 1610 megahertz. I will broadcast the message. Tell the world that you have rescued the deputy director. And Colonel, stop walking around here like you're God's gift to military history. Manville backed to the door and opened it. He said nothing as he left. Grafton sat down at his desk, knowing he had Manville and thousands of men by the balls. He kicked the beer cans and then checked the drawers for any weapons, finding only a large stash of marijuana and a small plastic bag of cocaine. Sergeant! Sergeant! The man with the M14 by the door scurried inside and kept his back upright and his eyes ahead. Sir! Bring these drugs outside and burn them. Yes, sir! There'll be media people all over this place when we take Argos. You tell those clowns out there, if I find drugs in their possession, I will personally cut out their tongues. The sergeant swallowed. Yes, yeah, sir. Grafton threw the bag at him. The soldier caught the cocaine bag, but the larger marijuana bag hit the floor. He scooped up the marijuana and ran out of the bunker. Mandel and a private moved through the bunker opening. The private set a large black radio on the desk. Manville turned and gazed at the bags, but remained silent. Plug it in. Manville bent down and connected the set to a long yellow cord, running directly through the dirt and into the generator. Another soldier pulled an antenna wire. Another soldier pulled in an antenna wire. Soon a whooshing sound echoed around the room as the colonel twisted the dial. My troops will move against the old derricks. When they hear this message, Grafton sat in Manville's chair. Good. Dismissed, Private. The young boy saluted both Manville and Grafton, although he appeared confused about the American presence. When he shut the door, Manville cleared his throat. I may have been a bit too pushy. Grafton shook his head. We will run with the plan. No more changes. Have you rehearsed your victory speech we drafted for you? You will deliver it from the balcony of the presidential palace after Mbutu is officially dead. I will be standing with you. Yes, sir. Grafton knew his next move after the speech would be to kill Manville and thrust Seville into power. The rest would be easy, setting up exactly what the Chinese wanted as he conned Edgar Mitchell and then got out with an unprecedented $25 million fee. Then all the risk and the constant demands on his life would vanish. Double-crossing Manville would be more a pleasure than a regret. But he would now turn his back on his long career, betraying the United States of America and everything he stood for. Green Haze, Chapter 28 
Sam paid the taxi driver and followed Nina to a computer store with backroom computer stations. They merged with the other customers through the wide glass doors and past security scanners to the busy service desk. Computers were everywhere, monitors glistening with graphics and boxes stacked above the aisles to the back wall. Nina stepped ahead of him as he surveyed the people and checked for anything suspicious. She leaned toward the woman behind the counter. Yes, I called about computer time. Name? Henderson. The woman shuffled some papers, then lifted up a piece of yellow-lined paper. You said you needed internet access also. Correct. Sam watched a couple leaving with a huge printer and computer boxes atop shopping carts. Then he looked at the young girl behind the counter. How much more for the computer time? She wrapped a calculator button. $23 an hour. That's kind of steep. I'm only authorized, sir, to give you the prices. Then get to your boss. I don't care. We don't need to be here that long. Nina raised her brows. This is our last shot to get those pictures, Nina. A few minutes later, a balding manager, shorter than the young woman, marched down the aisles. The girl rolled her eyes when he agreed to charge him, only for the time they used. He brought them to a rear room with at least a dozen cubicles. Sam looked at Nina as they were assigned a workstation. The manager apologized as they both sat down at the cubicle. When he left, Sam pulled out the wrinkled card with Griff's faded handwriting. He quickly maneuvered onto the internet and typed in the first site on the wrinkled card. This was the last option before leaving for Canada. He leaned forward as if he were at a roulette table when Griff's second site appeared. Come on, Griffy, come on. A designation for photos popped on the screen. My God, Sam. Yes. He clicked the mouse. The first picture slowly formed from the top of the screen. He squeezed her hand as hope returned like sustenance after a much-needed meal. One by one, the beach pictures and then the city pictures formed on the screen. They had been online for six minutes when Nina rose from the chair and hugged him. Pay dirt! The bridge picture was clearer than a print. Sam looked around at the workstations, but no one seemed to care about his vital piece of information. He successfully enlarged the picture, and Craig Grafton, Deputy Director of Defense Security, was indeed standing on the St. John's Bridge with the other two men. He could not stop smiling at Nina, leaning over her shoulder. Give my right arm to know who those other guys are. Well, don't ask for things like that. Agreed. He clicked the mouse to print, and the enlarged picture was soon spitting through the printer. Grafton's image was even more definitive on the paper. Sam held the paper in his hands as if he had just delivered a baby. A single picture of Grafton would unlikely cause all the ruckus, but his association with these other men was significant. Now what do we do with it? Find out who the other guys are. Oh, piece of cake. Sam put his arm around her and they embraced. Thank God Griff put the pictures in here. Must have only been a matter of minutes before they raided his house. He nodded as his throat tightened. Griff did not deserve to be caught up in the crossfire. What about the other pictures? Let's print everything. Took less than a half an hour to print, and using the mouse, he figured out how to save each photograph on a disc. Nina placed each one of the printed sheets inside a manila folder as he made a second copy of the pictures on another disc. What if somebody gets to the site? I don't know. It's just a matter of time before they rifle through the rest of Griff's property. Doesn't matter. He put down several discs in his pocket. We have what we need. We have to figure out what to do with it. Good, at least we have something. She opened up the folder and pulled out the enlarged shot of Grafton on the bridge. 
Come on, let's pay that flaky girl up front. Sam shut down the computer and the printer. They moved out of the back room. About halfway up the aisle, she held his wrist. Sam, what about this green haze thing? I mean, while we still have computer access. We've got the pictures, Nina. Let's go. It could be knowledge that'll keep us alive. He stopped for a moment. They were in the middle of Wisconsin, and the girl at the counter stared at them, and they returned to the rear room. He booted up the machine and moved on to the net. He punched in the words for St. Augustine. The screen button indicated the computer was connecting to another page. It's www.grha.com. Sam clicked on the address. Again, the computer searched for the site, but the screen opened up with a simple typewritten message. My God, Griff. Griff established Green Haze. Green Haze established to store our photographs taken from St. Augustine. That prompted the pillaging of the beachfront hotel. Law enforcement people were killed and the photographer and his wife were forced on the run. She looked into his eyes and then down the bottom of the page. What's this? I have browsed Green Haze and found it to be of critical importance. Please explain what you mean by downloading the photographs. I've uncovered additional information about Green Haze. It's critical I see these photographs and see if they relate to the knowledge I have of Green Haze. They're after me, too. My guess is that you're Sam or Nina Peters. Signed on the run. Do you think it's a trap, Sam? You know, to get us to respond? Sam stared at the message. Could be a trap, but we have to respond. And then they know where we are. No. Sam sat up to type as he thought. How did On the Run know about this site? She shook her head. But apparently he didn't download the pictures from the other site. That's right. Sam's fingers were on the keyboard, but he had stopped typing. If Griff hadn't labeled the site with the green haze designation, he saved our lives. Yep. He knew the trouble we were in, and that's why he put this other site up here. We have to take this chance, Nina. Thank you, old buddy, wherever the hell you are. He tapped the keys. On the run. Received your message. We have the photos, and we know the identity of one individual highly placed. If you have information and are on the run, you must share it with us. We must meet. Who are you? Where are you? And your guess is correct. Sam placed the message in the posted area and then looked up at Nina. Worst case scenario is that they know we're alive. But if this guy is being chased too, Nina, maybe he has contacts. Maybe he can share our information. Maybe we can finally get out of this hell. Green Haze, Chapter 29 Keaton, gone for a day and a half, was due back at any time. Garrison sat on the sofa watching the vivid news footage from Pangaea. The situation must have prompted Keaton's people to call him north for briefings. Bright orange flashes lit the sky from ocean oil wells and black smoke drifted with the air currents out to sea. Major buildings were hit and more footage showed rebels marching through the streets near Agos. The country's president was in hiding and Colonel Manville's name was floated as a possible president. Deputy Director Grafton was rescued by the rebels and then deposited in Agos. A special meeting of the United Nations Security Council in New York had convened. And here you are, Roy, in the thick of it. And so are Sam and Nina Peters, whoever the hell they are. And then what happens to me? They'll get me. It's like knowing a mafia secret. They won't rest until they get me, just like they got Richard. 
Keaton's car stopped out front and Garrison sprang from the couch. As he walked toward the door, still looking at the TV, the FBI agent swept across the patio, rounded up his people, and headed toward the beach. Garrison could hear his voice, but not the words, and his hands moved about in wild gestures. Several times he pointed toward the house, and once he made eye contact with Garrison in the slider opening. Roy! Keaton motioned him forward as the agents dispersed. Keaton motioned him forward as the agents dispersed. Garrison moved quickly across the cement and onto the beach sand. The tide broke quickly as Keaton put his hand on Garrison's shoulder. We're out of here. What happened? Several car engines started out front and the sedans pulled away. What the hell is going on here? Listen, don't ask me anything. Let's just get out of here right now. Garrison trailed him back to the house. They're after me, aren't they? Keaton walked ahead but stopped in front of the TV. By the way, Grafton is back in Argos. Is he? Keaton stood for a few seconds, stroked his chin, and gradually turned. The lines deepened around his gray eyes. Damn. What? We have to go. Did they get the Peters? Keaton, his eyes moist, looked up from the set again. No, I haven't heard that. Come on, let's go. Garrison said nothing as Keaton shut off the set and the lights. Then he locked up the house and they walked into the cooler afternoon air. Garrison was the first inside the car and turned toward the whitecaps and billowing clouds across the Pacific. Keaton started the car and looked into his eyes for the longest time. Now it was just a matter of trust as Keaton spun the tires in the sand. Garrison kept his mouth shut. The beachfront house quickly faded in the rearview mirror as spitting raindrops hit the windshield. Keaton turned on the wipers and kept his eyes on the dirt road ahead. Garrison's vengeance was now supplemented by an overwhelming fear of things beyond his control. Green Haze, Chapter 30 Edgar Mitchell closed the heavy wood hotel door. Grafton turned from the burning oil wells and the boat crews containing the fires. Mitchell was dressed in cocky jungle garb, and his chiseled brown eyes were intense. Grafton shook his smooth hand. Well, you're a son of a bitch, Craig. Thank you, Edgar. Coming from you, that's high praise. I think the White House is satisfied now, and I have people dealing with certain senators. Holding them back from obliterating Manville was harder than I thought. They all like Seville, actually. Seville has his proponents in this country, too. He does. Manville cannot be trusted, Edgar. We've said it all along, but he is the rebel leader. I understand your feelings, Craig. You don't like the man. Goes beyond that. He's incompetent. Can hurt us. We'll get to that in a minute. What about the loyalist troop movements? I gave you the satellite readouts. Consistent? They've mostly surrendered a few pockets out by Lake Shar. He mixed a martini for Mitchell. So, how does it feel at age 52 to be blasted out of the sky? This is the last field assignment I'll ever have. You've earned the respect and admiration of everyone involved, Craig. Grafton handed him the drink and he raised it in the air. To Craig Grafton, who has done the impossible. Grafton clinked his glass. To the impossible. He again pushed his lips together. Edgar, it's uh, imperative we talk about Manville. Sound like a man with a plan, Craig. I am. What are you suggesting? Use Manville to obtain the objective, then switch the alliance to Seville. 
He wants the power. Read the reports on the man, educated in Paris. The man's written books on the international situation. I talked to him at his residence before my mission inland. With a Mrs. Collins, Margaret Henning. She's been around the circuit for a long time. We'll be providing background papers on her. Stay away from her. I only screwed her once, Edgar. She has affiliations around the world, and she's playing footsie with the Chinese right now. Screwing her is one thing. Getting involved with her is another. Understood. And I will consider what you're saying about Manville, but it won't happen overnight. Manville is an obstacle. Your first obstacle will be going to the media. What time is the press conference? Grafton had hoped Mitchell would take the bait about Seville. 8 p.m., Argos time. We'll spin it before they get a hold of the story on the early morning broadcast. Mitchell sat down on the sofa and pulled together some scattered papers over the coffee table. Grafton sat rigidly in a leather-backed chair to the left. He saw accounts of a killing in Paducah, Kentucky. Both Garrison and the Peters couple are still at large. Mitchell's concentration was broken and his eyes focused. Well, I'm not happy about this. Cam Pritchard came up with the idea about framing the Peters for this Griffith guy's murder. It's kept them at bay, but where? They should have been taken out when they arrived at Griffith's house, Edgar. What kind of nonsense is going on here? Mitchell arose and threw his arms up. Agreed. That's exactly what it is. The whole thing never should have happened, Craig. You gave the order. It was very simple. Get the Peters film. Not shoot the hell out of the hotel and kill three cops. I should never have taken a stroll across that bridge, Edgar. Can't blame yourself for that. The fact that some guy was snapping pictures is just one of those things. It's damn panicky the way that hotel thing was handled. Peters are not trained professionals. Should be easy to track them down, especially if we've painted them as Griffith's killers. I know, that will be a first priority when I get back. Pritchard is good. I know he's good. I recommended him. Okay, then we solve the Peters thing quickly. Mitchell pointed at the table. And there's still Garrison. Grafton moved the papers back and forth and read the information about Garrison and the two bombings. Now I would expect some trouble finding this guy. He's savvy and cagey. Streetwise, like a cat. We got him fired, and that cut off his means to get this thing out. I think Roy Garrison is just waiting to pounce. Maybe. Mitchell thought for a moment. You better get ready for the press conference. I don't want you in a tie-in suit coat, Craig. Go casual. Like you just got out of the jungle. It will play better. Grafton nodded, but Garrison concerned him. What are the standing orders about Garrison? Let's put it this way, if Garrison pounces, we'll skin him alive. Green Haze, Chapter 31 Sam leaned against a new Maytag floor model. He and Nina watched a special Pangea report on a row of 32 TV sets along the wall. A reporter described the African country's current situation from a hotel lobby in the capital city. Microphones were placed on a wood podium atop a stage with a blue draped background. The reporter, holding a microphone, turned as Craig Grafton, dressed in a gray sweatshirt and jeans, not looking any worse for his capture, walked with a number of black men in gold military uniforms and a second contingent of white men in dark suits. Nina held his arm. There he is, Sam. Grafton stood behind the hardened Loyalist soldiers. Some commander was extolling Grafton's bravery under fire. Sam studied Grafton's cool eyes behind the wire rims. 
His face was smooth and he never flinched. When Grafton stepped up to the microphone, his voice was crisp. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a brief statement before I answer your questions. This guy's very good, Sam. Nina put her arm around him as he scanned the store. On April 25th, I conferred with President Mbutu, requested that I participate in an overall reconnaissance mission over rebel territory near Lake Shara. I will emphasize I was fully aware of the danger of this type of mission and take full responsibility for it. At 10.35 a.m. Pangea time, I was flying a Pangean government F-16 south of Lake Shar when the rocket attacks began. I took immediate action and ejected from the aircraft. Did the lawyers shoot down your plane? Asked a French reporter in the front row. It's not my place to comment publicly on this attack. I can only say I'm grateful to the rebel forces who, under fire, rescued me and returned me with no strings attached back to Argos. Grafton then looked out over the crowd. Somebody up front called out something, but he couldn't hear the question and cupped his left ear. He nodded as the mobile camera zoomed on the man's greasy black hair. Grafton repeated the question. The question is whether anyone in the agency ordered this mission over rebel territory, and I believe I've answered that question, but let me make it clear. I made the decision here in Agos to fly that mission for purely for our recognizance. You didn't check back to the United States? No, that wasn't necessary. Uh, let me also assure you that while I was aware of the risk, I was in no way aware that I was flying into a situation where the aircraft would be attacked by... Again, I have no public comment on the logistics of all this. Someone asked him about the rebels gaining power soon, but he deferred any talk about the State Department and United States policy to other people in the room. He continued talking about the rebel bravery and expressed a veiled displeasure at the Mbutu regime, but spoke highly of the Pangean general named Seville. Sam turned from the set. There's obviously more to this, Nina. Or we won't be standing here in the most isolated store in the United States. How much money do you have? She reached in her jeans pocket and pulled out a ten dollar bill and three ones. My life savings. I have forty seven bucks. She put her arms around him, leaning her blonde hair into his chest. He held her hand and then placed his hands on her shoulders. Let's give this on the run 24 hours. Then somehow we'll make it into Canada. Her moist eyes tightened. Her moist blue eyes tightened. We can't survive on this. I want to go home. I want to see Jason again. Sam slowly shook his head. We will. Somehow we will. Green Haze, Chapter 32 Grafton thanked the press and had just exited the room when he saw Edgar Mitchell standing next to a well-dressed Roland James. He kept walking as James moved away from Mitchell. Grafton kept a close watch on James's hands and was ready to pull out his Luger. My name is Roland James and I just want to tell you I think you handled those bastards very well. You probably angered Mbutu in his bunker. He's working with us, Craig. Craig Grafton, Roland James, Section M-29 Special Forces. Grafton shook his hand and thought about him back in the jungle with the Chinese operatives and then on the Toronto balcony. James had too many affiliations and too many allegiances. The trick was determining his current and most active link. Under other circumstances, Grafton would have put James under arrest or killed him on the spot. But not now. Fate followed him like a ravenous wolf in the forest. The loyalists wanted blood, Mr. James. 
Blood comes with a price. It does. They were quickly escorted through the hotel's back hallways to a waiting limo. Grafton dipped his head and sat on the soft leather seat. As the limo slowly pulled away from a few lingering reporters and cleared out the circular hotel drive, Mitchell poured drinks for them. The reason I have Roland here, Craig, has to do with the Chinese. Oh? Grafton was sure he had been double-crossed. Yes, you see, there's a definite movement afoot. Not diplomatically, to undermine the new government. James is aware of Green Haze, Craig. Okay. Are they against Manville or with him? James flashed his chipped tooth when he smiled. Oh, the Chinese want him out. They want to control the oil with a puppet. We all suspect Seville. Craig and I have nothing against Seville, and Nimbutu knows his government will fall. But under no circumstances are we going to throw out any support of Manville right now. We've come too far in this operation, and there's no need for it. Grafton raised up his glass to Colonel Manville, who is in love with himself. Mitchell's belly laughed and enveloped the limo. James merely smiled as if we were at a social event. Mbutu will be dead soon, I assure you. I want you and Roland to work this thing out. We need to see just what the Chinese interests are here. Seville should be elevated, though not associated with Mbutu's human rights abuses. As Grafton faced James, he could not help thinking about the $25 million. He would have to act swiftly and get out of Pangaea if Mitchell was spawning Chinese inquiries. Suspicion like a balloon instantly inflated fueled his fears as the limo turned toward an unfamiliar hotel. Unfamiliar places were risky places. He peered out the window and then back at the beady-eyed Mitchell. Mitchell looked at his watch. Want you two to hammer out this Chinese thing. Take as long as you want. I'll be back at the Richambleau. What do you want out of this, Edgar? Grafton saw no eye contact between the two men. I need access to a computer. James nodded and the limo stopped. That will be no problem. Good. The hotel doorman opened the limo. Grafton again studied Mitchell's pupils, looking for any incremental muscular movement in his face, indicating prevarication. He didn't think he was being set up as he shook Mitchell's hand and stepped out of the car. James led him to the revolving door. I'm on the 52nd floor. Grafton had no regrets about committing to the money. He moved through the rotating door, knowing his time with the agency was over. The grind would end and he would place himself on the remote Aegean island of Contaba and never be found. Once they crossed the lobby, James spoke to him. We are very close. Grafton said nothing until they reached the creaky old elevator. Who the hell are you? Not your concern. Grafton turned and grabbed his lapels. James's face possessed a certain smug appearance. Listen, your ass is on the line here. Want this thing done quickly. Time will expose it. If James double-crossed him with the money or he was being set up, he had enough to sink Edgar Mitchell. Running green haze against administration policy was allowing Mitchell as a private citizen to override elected officials and pursue a game plan that suited his agency policy. Grafton waited for James to stop his charade and begin talking about the money and his real intentions. He released James and a deadly silence pervaded the elevator. On the 25th floor, the unsteady car slowed and shuddered to a quick stop. He followed James to the darkened stairs, up one flight and onto the roof. Grafton readied his gun. 
High above Argos, the salty wind blew James's brown hair back, and he squinted. An easy way out of this Chinese thing was either to shoot James or push him off the building and blame it all on the offer itself. Then he might be free of any commitment to the Chinese. Where's the upfront money? I don't have it. I won't be used like this. No, no, Chung is arranging all your requests. Twenty-five total. Correct. Don't toy with me, James. I want the upfront money and the Swiss numbers. Chung wants you to assassinate Manville. Mbutu isn't even officially dead yet. Tell you, Chun wants you to kill Manville. Grafton shook his head. That's a dumb move. No, it will not be done. You get the money. I will take care of Manville, but not personally. Think that's what they mean. Listen, you tell this Chinese bastard I want account numbers. And I want the upfront money in cash. Chun is working on it. Maybe you think I'm not going to check your every movement, James. People are in place, and if anything happens to me, they'll hang you and your accomplices by your balls. James' downturned mouth exposed his little yellow teeth as he looked over the city. Hey, <laughs> you're bluffing. Try me. If I go down, you're all dead men, and you tell that to Chun. I will have people that will track him down. I'll have the son of a bitch killed. Is that clear? For close to a minute, James stood with no expression, as if every nerve in his face was severed. I will relay the information. Relay this. Money by courier. Room 16, the Russian blow. Tomorrow night at 8 p.m. The deal is off if there's no cash. James spoke softly. Two? There'll be two million in my hands. The remaining 23 will be in Swiss accounts. You tell Chun I will take care of Manville. Then it's up to Chung. Very simple. What if they won't go along with it? With an unusually cocky smile, he shifted his weight from foot to foot. Grafton spun and moved just a few inches from his face. Here's what you're going to do for me, Mr. James. You're going to lay this whole thing out. Names and places so I can double check it. I want to know who I'm dealing with, and I want you to know who you're dealing with. He quickly removed his gun and pushed it into James's neck. Then he pulled out a small handgun from under James's sweater. This isn't going to be messed up, is it, James? His eyes flared open. Everything I've said is true. Good. He set James's gun back in his palm. 8 p.m. tomorrow night. Green Haze, Chapter 33. Sam needed to check Griff's email. He and Nina trudged out of the windy rain and back into the computer store. Once safely in the back room, he set the St. Augustine pictures safely on the cubicle table and looked up at a pensive Nina. She put her hand on his shoulder as he accessed Griff's next site. They would again begin their journey north to Canada today if nothing was on the computer website. He logged in and his old message flashed onto the screen. Then he scrolled forward and turned toward Nina. Look! The message was dated that morning, just two hours ago. May 6th, 6.35 a.m. It is imperative that we join forces. You have the photos and I have the info on Green Haze. Linking the two sources might extricate you from your predicament with Griffith's murder. This is a highly classified government operation from what I can gather. Without the photos, I cannot go forward. Tell me where I can meet you and I will be there with all the information I possess. Roy Garrison, L.A. Dispatch. Sam smiled and began typing. He looked up as she squeezed his hand. Sam, this might be a setup. 
We have no other choice other than to link up with this guy. We'll cover ourselves. Suppose he's one of those people trying to kill us, then what? He shook his head. What do we do, Nina? You tell me. There is no more money. We have to eat. We can't go back home. We might make it to Canada. I don't know. We just better pray to God this guy is on the level. What are you going to say? Get his phone number. Then we call, and they don't know where we're calling from. If he calls, they'll find out. You keep saying they. Sam looked back at the computer. I'm going to assume that Roy Garrison is a man of his word. I'm going to get his number. Sam typed a very simple message and spoke it out loud. May 6th, 9.26 a.m. Garrison, get your phone number to me. He turned to Nina. The words entered the computer from some unknown location, and Sam kept his finger on the keyboard. He's online. Quick messaging system. That will not be necessary, Sam. Linked in with your site. Listen, if you need to talk with me direct, answer me now. Sam continued. What is this highly classified operation? The info I have relates to the outbreaks of VED that may have been actuated by the U.S. military. Sam, I think you may have taken pictures of someone in that operation. Agreed. The man is Craig Grafton, Deputy Director of Defense Security, who was shot down in Pangaea. Right, right, good work. Somehow Grafton is linked with the antidote to VED. Green Haze is the cover name. Can you download the photos? No, I want you and your information here. Roy. Nothing else happened on the computer. Nina leaned over his shoulder. Sam, type something else. He's mulling it over. Look what he wrote, Nina. It looks as though they're infecting people with this VED. We have to let him look at the photos. Maybe he knows who the other guys are. Then we can go forward with this somehow. Sam, you have a deal. Tell me where I have to be and I'll be there with my CD and information. Wow! Sam pushed back the chair. He held her shoulders. This has to be unanimous, Nina. She nodded but was still thinking. Her tense blue eyes bounced from Sam to the screen. Then she focused on him. If we don't do it, Sam, we won't survive this anyways. That's the way I feel about it. Okay. He kissed her forehead and smiled. Then he spun around to the keyboard. Public Library, Racine, Wisconsin. I can be there at 3 p.m. today. I will be wearing an Anaheim Angels baseball cap. Anything else? Let me type this in. Be careful, Roy. Green Haze, Chapter 34. Grafton shut off the laptop and pulled the plug. He looked at the reflection of a traitor in the bathroom mirror. His $2 million would now be safely deposited in a German bank and later transferred to a Hong Kong securities firm under another identity. Land would soon be purchased by a proxy. These people were serious about gaining the upper hand in Pangean politics. They were just like the Americans thirsting not only for the oil, but for the raw power resulting from controlling that oil. Three rockets hit the Agos Business District that afternoon. Mbutu was held up in a bunker near the presidential palace and kept repeating how he did not order the F-16 attack. American public opinion had swung against full military involvement as Mitchell convinced everyone in the United States he could cut a deal with the rebels. 
Behind the scenes, an elite force was flying in from Western Europe, and Mbutu would be dead in 24 hours. The military situation was relayed to him earlier. His sources told him that Pangean troops were pushed back to a point 35 kilometers from Argos. He stared at his own image again, eyes bright and alive and face unlined. Keeping his nerve throughout this operation was not something he worried about. The Americans suspected nothing. Like Mbutu, they trusted him, especially Edgar Mitchell, who was already running around administration policy, as well as convincing the administration to take out Mbutu. Garrison's own objective was to slip away alone, by land, once Manville was dead and Seville installed as the new Pangean ruler. Still, he trusted no one. The Chinese might very well try to kill him and recover the money. Any remaining government operatives would want him dead for selling out, but at least he could cover himself by exposing Mitchell's treasonous activity with the rebels. It was 7.50 p.m. James's ultimate credibility still bothered him. He went over to the bar and took out some aged whiskey. After he was dropping ice cubes into the glass, his satellite phone rang. He unscrewed the amber bottle and poured the liquid into the crystal glass. Then he walked across the room and picked up the small, black plastic unit. Craig, this is Cam Pritchard. We've uncovered reports that the FBI, specifically Bruce Keaton, is involved in this garrison thing. Grafton waited a few seconds. Garrison and the Peters did not mean much anymore. He scratched his shoulder. What do they say? Well, that's just too bad. Close them down on that. Get them the hell out of the Garrison and Peters case. Well, that's exactly what I did. Something's wrong because Keaton is missing. Holding the phone against his ear, Grafton began pacing the room. I see three possibilities. One, he's dead. Or the FBI is playing games with us. Or he's defied the FBI. What was his motive? He put the word out from some of our contacts within his agency. The strong evidence that Keaton had found Garrison. By eliminating Keaton, we might eliminate Garrison. Good reasoning. We need to put this whole thing to bed. I have no excuses. Every cop in the country is aware of the Peters-Griffith connection. It's been on national news. With Garrison, I just don't know. Your end is closing down. The whole thing is folding up fast. Manville will be in power soon. Good or bad? Grafton squinted. Pritchett had no reason to ask this question. Depends on your point of view. Yes, Craig, it does. With a knock at the door, Grafton's head jutted to the right, but he was thinking whether Pritchett knew about the Chinese. I have to go. Company? That was another unwarranted question. No. Eleven a.m. He cut the transmission, pulled out his Luger, checked the clip, and walked to the door. Two short Chinese men, only around five six, stood with blank expressions until they saw his gun. They turned in unison and waved a taller Chinese man in a blue business suit and carrying a briefcase into the hall. Grafton recognized him from surveillance pictures as a Chun associate. He spoke perfect English. May I come in, Mr. Grafton? 
He walked ahead of the others, and they shut the hallway door. I am here on behalf of Mr. Chin, and I have what you want. He set the briefcase under a wood-shaded incandescent bulb above the table and popped the brass locks. Grafton quickly counted the stacks of thousand-dollar bills. Good. Chun wants you to kill Manville tonight. I don't take my orders from Mr. Chun. You work for us now. We will discuss what you will and won't do, Mr. Grafton. You will discuss nothing. Grafton thumbed through the bills and closed the case. Tell Chun he will wait till the rebels control Argos. I will take care of Manville and then get Seville where he needs to be. The rest of the money will be deposited now. Chun will be brought in at that time. Chun will not just deposit money on your say-so. I have my orders. You will do as we say or the money goes back. You tell Chun it will be done my way. Chun does not like being dictated to. Then Chun has a problem then, doesn't he? Grafton saw him moving for the gun, but he shot first. The man's white shirt blew up in blood. His eyes and mouth opened as he fell back over the chair. Grafton fired two additional shots at the door and then stepped to the side and opened it. One of the guards was down and the other fired. Grafton pushed his lips together and slowly popped the trigger. The other guard grabbed his stomach and fell to the hallway rug. Grafton turned slowly and casually, stuck another clip in his luger. Then he closed the briefcase, secured the locks, and walked into the corridor. They still needed him, but they respected him, and he had the two million. He placed a call to hotel security. They could clean up this mess. He stepped through an open window and onto a rusted fire escape. The outside air was stagnant and quiet as he crawled through the metal rungs down into a darkened alley along the hotel. He quickly hopped onto his moped, headed down the alley to a brightly lit boulevard, and then moved with the heavy traffic downtown. He turned into the Hotel Montebaum parking garage. He secured the moped and carried the briefcase into the stairwell. In the lobby, he walked to the phone booths outside the bar. He dialed Roland James. The line rang loudly for at least a half a minute. There was a click and then a British accent. I don't like being pressured, James. You tell your people that. You have three dead couriers back at the Russian Blue because they like to play games with guns. Dead? You're telling me they're dead? You tell Chun. No more nonsense. Are you crazy? Maybe. You tell him if this happens again. He's a dead man. Grafton set down the phone quickly but stopped thinking about Chun. Cam Pritchett's Chinese hints were potentially most threatening. Once Edgar Mitchell understood the deal, he would order people to follow Grafton and gather information on Chun and the Chinese. Through his connections, the money would be electronically deposited in Germany and then hidden in Singapore. He could easily slip out of Pangaea right now, but the remaining $23 million would give him the security and ease he demanded for the rest of his life. Green Haze, Chapter 35 Garrison shook his head and finished the cigarette. Keaton was more fidgety than he had been during the last 48 hours. The ruddy agent's eyes moved around like an animated children's doll as Garrison drove out of the airport. Bruce, you're starting to make me nervous. Keaton turned and peered out the window van's mini-blinds again. You're the one who should be nervous. 
Garrison ground his cigarette into a metal ashtray. Keaton had cautioned him that the computer chat message from the Peters might be something out there to lure them all into a trap. But Garrison was certain he had contacted the man who had snapped pictures of Craig Grafton. Well, Peters is probably suspicious of us. Keaton grinned. <laughs> he should be. Garrison rolled his eyes as they neared the main city. Keaton's role had changed, but he wouldn't talk about it. His agents had vanished back at the beach house, and he was not making any phone calls. It was almost as if he had been abandoned by his own people. Garrison left Keaton in the van across from the library. He studied the intersection and the library entrances. When the street was clear, he crossed inside the pedestrian walk's thick white-painted lines and moved toward the tall gray building ahead. The old worn fortress tower clock chimed three times as he stepped onto the curb. Peters nor anyone else was visible. He climbed the library's wooden steps, clutched the brass rail, and pulled open the door. Behind the central main desk was a study area below an upper mezzanine. Long-chained crystalline lamps hung from a water-stained plaster ceiling. He adjusted his angel's cap as if he were giving a sign to a base runner moved toward the study area. A few people were seated along glossy wood tables. He paralleled a lengthy bookcase and pretended to take out a book. After turning a few pages, he sat at the table. Where the hell are they, Roy? This thing is too important for bullshit. Nothing upstairs in the stacks and five people at the study tables. Come on, Peters. We're talking about being tracked by professionals. We could all be killed. Good morning, Roy. Garrison jumped and turned. A thin woman with stunning blonde hair and bright blue eyes smiled. Garrison's face tightened. Can I help you? She leaned forward and whispered, Are you Roy Garrison? Yeah, who wants to know? A man in the mystery section upstairs. She pulled back the chair across a worn section of wood floor. Then she sat down. Someone would already have grabbed him if this is a setup. My husband is waiting for you. I'll watch the door. Are you Mrs. Peters? She nodded and spoke. Nina, we need your help, Roy. Okay. Garrison checked the front himself before heading up the rear staircase. Nina looked up from the study tables. Then he started down the stacks. He was never very good at locating the book numbers. Each book aisle passed like a camera shutter, snapping the scene. Roy? Garrison spun around. Across the mezzanine was a thin man with a dark beard. He wore a gray sweatshirt and was carrying a legal-sized manila folder. He extended his hand and had a mellow, academic voice. I feel like the second piece of a puzzle. You are... He pulled Peters along the stacks. They sat down at a slate table in front of a wide-arched window overlooking the van, securely parked on the street, but he could not yet tell Sam about Keaton. Sam said nothing, but opened the folder at the same time Grafton took out the CD from his pocket. A vivid shot of Craig Grafton standing with three men on a bridge was spread with other pictures in an open folder. Damn, got that right. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time, said Garrison. We saw what happened to Grafton in Africa. Sam waved to his wife at the study table. They won't rest until my wife and I are dead. He thought about Richard's car, enveloped in a fireball. I lost my brother because of these bastards. My friend is dead. Some cops are dead. His face tightened. My wife and I have somehow evaded them. Garrison nodded as he pushed back the other pictures. 
I'd like to think that someone is watching over me other than the government and you. Garrison handed Sam the pages he had printed off the PC and the disc. Sam ran his fingers along the pages he read. Through the old wood frame window, Keaton stood in the crosswalk outside. For a moment, Garrison had the urge to grab Sam and run, but cooperating with Keaton was the only link to survival. God, how can they do this? Is this defense unit responsible for spreading this VED? Yeah, it kind of looks that way. What about the other men in the picture? Do you know who they are? Sam kept reading and shook his head. No idea. Listen, I have contacts who can work on identifying them. We can figure this thing out without contacts. It's too risky. No, we can't. I've been on the run on the verge of being killed a dozen times. He set down the folder and checked for his wife again. Then he shot to his feet. Where the hell is Nina? Peter stuffed the folder under his arms and bolted down the stairs. He had already entered the first floor when Keaton walked out slowly with Nina. You're a liar! He has a gun, said his wife. Keaton slowly walked out with Peters' wife. You're a liar, yelled Peters. He has a gun, said the wife. Keaton stepped between them. We are here to help you. You're a bastard, Garrison, said Peters, holding his wife's hand. Keaton talked softly as if he were some kind of psychiatric counselor. We're not going to turn you over to anyone, Sam. You'll be safe with us. I don't believe you. Listen, whether you believe me or not is irrelevant. She held his arm. Sam, if they are the ones after us, if they were the ones after us, we'd be dead by now. You think it's fair to lure us in here after what we've been through? Asked Sam. Garrison stepped up to them. I've been through the same thing, damn it. If I told you Keaton was with me, you never would have agreed to meet me. Not only that, what the hell can you or I do with just partial information? Keaton can help us. Listen to him, Sam, said Nina. Sam pushed his lips together and alternated glances between Garrison and Keaton. Okay. He handed the folder to Keaton, who opened it quickly and perused the contents, but pulled out the bridge photo. He looked at Sam and then at Garrison. Well, this is very interesting. I see Grafton, but can you find out who the other guys are, Bruce? I'll try. Keaton motioned them all out front. They marched through the library with only a fleeting look from the woman behind the desk. They were whisked across the busy street to the van. Once inside, he turned to Sam. Listen, I am going to try and find the identities of the guy in the picture. You think it's this defense security? Keaton looked at Garrison briefly before he spoke. I know that's where Grafton's realm is. I know there's something afoot called Green Haze. Those people in the hotel room, they mentioned Green Haze, said Nina. What is Green Haze? Keaton paused. We'll get to that later. Sam leaned against the window as Garrison drove the van from the library. Nina whispered something in Sam's ear and he nodded, half closing his eyes. We have people at home not knowing whether we're alive or dead. Keaton pinched the bridge of his nose. If we allow you or even pass word about you, we all risk being killed. Sam leaned forward. You wouldn't at least call? His wife whispered something again. I can't do that, said Keaton, picking up the van phone. This is risky, very risky. We're going to be flown out of here to a safe location. We may be unraveling a classified national security operation. Good, said Sam. Not good, replied Keaton. 
Let me make this clear again. My job is to gather information, and I will attempt to help you people lead normal lives again. That's it. My purpose is not revenge or to tear down covert operations. I'm sorry for what's happened to both of you and your friend Griffith. Roy lost his brother. Let's take this step by step. Trust me, my contacts, and hopefully my experience. Deal? Sam looked at Nina and then out the van window. Listen to what he says, said Garrison. Keaton held his phone as the line connected, but his other fist was clenched as he spoke. Yes, I have a picture of Craig Grafton on a St. Augustine bridge with two other men. What? Come on, what did you tell them? He waited, moving the receiver closer to his ear. No, I have them all. Once I get to the plane, I'll transmit the photo. I don't care what you have to do, Tom. Just get the damn identities on those people with Grafton. Right. Is the apartment set up? Yeah. All right, I'll call. What happened? asked Garrison. Keaton looked at the Peters again. Sam, do we have a deal? Yeah, we have a deal. Just get us out of this. I'll do my best. He turned to Garrison. Roy, several people from the Defense Security Agency have been transferred to the DOJ. What's the DOJ? asked Sam. Department of Justice. They've met with the Attorney General. I'm sure they're wondering where the hell I am and what I'm doing. A domestic coordinator named Cameron Pritchard and his counterpart, Charles McCabe. I know Charlie McCabe, but I don't know Pritchard. They're scared because of what's happening in Pangea, said Garrison. Yes, they are. Rebels are advancing to the capital. We saw it on the hotel TV, said Nina. Grafton is aware that you people are at large, said Keaton. What will he do? Keaton stared out the window. Garrison also awaited his reply. Grafton will do whatever he has to do. And what of Bruce Keaton helping Garrison. Who's watching Keaton? Even Sam and Nina view the evolving violence in Pangea. They have, over the days, pinpointed Craig Grafton's role in Green Haze. Grafton is the ultimate professional conniver and conveyor of disinformation. The gurgling mixture of Pangean, the Chinese, and duplicitous rogues, combined with deals and payoffs, infecting people using the drug, this kind of nonsense doesn't happen, right? Wrong. I'm just a humble writer making up a story from the nooks and crannies on Cape Cod. This is Robert P. Fitton, and I'll be back next week for the final episode of Green Haze. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.